Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. I'm Grant Percet. And we're back in the studio with the second part of the interview with Dr. Richard Bauckham, world-renowned biblical scholar and theologian. You can find out more about Richard Bauckham at richardbauckham.co.uk. That's Richard, B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M.co.uk. Well, Dr. Bauckham is the author of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and the 10th anniversary second edition printing of that is coming out in just a couple months. You can pre-order that right now at Amazon.com. It's going to have three new chapters, and it's talking about the eyewitness testimony that's in the New Testament. Well, get excited for the second part of the interview and get last week's show at GodSolutionShow.com. Dr. Bachtim, do you, do you believe John Mark was the author of the Gospel of Mark? And what are the strongest arguments that John Mark from Acts was the writer of the Gospel of Mark? I think in a way this comes down to, are there likely, of the, are there likely to have been more than one prominent early Christian with the name Mark? Um, and some people say, oh, there must be lots of people called Mark, because Mark, which is the Latin name Marcus, uh, you see, John Mark has, has a Hebrew name and a Latin name. Uh, John is a Hebrew name. Marcus is a Latin name. Lots of Palestinian Jews had a Jewish name and a Greek name. Occasionally they also had a Latin name, um, uh, like Marcus, but that's, that's rather rare. I'm inclined to think that John took the name Mark when he traveled as a missionary uh, in the Roman Empire, as Acts depicts for us. So probably he adopted a Latin name um, uh, for use when he's with Gentiles um, preaching the gospel in the Roman Empire. Um, but anyway, he's called, he's, he has his Latin name, Mark, Marcus. Was Marcus a common Latin name? In one sense it was, because um, Roman citizens all had three names. And the first of those names was, um, well, let me take, for example, um, the famous Roman writer Cicero. Cicero was called Marcus Tullius Cicero. Marcus is his first name, his prynomen. But Cicero would never have been called Marcus, except by his mother and his sisters. Um, Cicero would be called either Cicero or Tullius, or Tullius Cicero. He would never be called just Marcus. But he might be called Marcus Tullius Cicero, but never just Marcus, except within the family. So Roman citizens who had Marcus as one of their three names um, would never be called just Mark. Uh, and so the Gospel of Mark could not have been written by a Roman citizen like Marcus Tullius Cicero. It would not have been called the Gospel according to Mark if, if, if Cicero if Cicero had written the Gospel, it would be the Gospel according to Cicero, not the Gospel according to Mark. Therefore, the person who wrote the Gospel who was called Mark must have been a non-Roman citizen, um, a non-Roman who adopted the Latin name Mark as his, as, as his uh, Latin name and just had that one name. Now, that, of course, would happen. People who are not Roman citizens would use uh, Latin names 
probably in addition to their native name, um, but it's much less common for um, someone to be called Mark in that, in that instance. Um, so I think it's when you, when you find more than one person called Mark or more than one reference to someone called Mark in early Christianity, the chances are it's the same Mark because it would not have been a common name and there would not have been lots of early Christians called Mark. Dr. Bacham, I have to ask one more follow-up question about Mark before we move on yes. from that. You know, Ehrman, who you've debated, man, if I had another couple hours with you, I'd love to hear what those experiences are like, you know, debating the biggest critics alive today. And uh, But I guess I'll save that question for a different time. But on the topic of Mark, people like Ehrman might say that that a high Christology kind of evolved over the first century. And, you know, in his book, How, uh, How Jesus Became God, he might argue that the initial, uh, initially the disciples just, you know, saw him as an apocalyptic prophet or whatever, and, and maybe through Paul, etc., that evolved into a view of God, and by the time John wrote, there was this, this view of Jesus as God seen in John 1. Now, my question, though, is there are references to Christ's deity in Mark, right? The first, the yeah. first gospel, we see Mark calling Jesus the Son of God. Uh, Hellerman yeah. notes that Roman convention associated uh, uh, the, the son of so-and-so as being the nature of so-and-so. Uh, John the Baptist quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, about you know um, Yahweh himself saying that he is preparing the way for Jesus as, as prophesied by Isaiah. You know, Jesus forgives sins in Mark. He changes God's law in Mark. He challenges the rich, rich young ruler. Why do you call me good? Mark mm -hmm. refers to his elect, his words, um, and, of course, uses the title Son of Man to refer to Jesus, which in Daniel seems to be a, a very clear view of the judge of all humanity. Is, is Mark just looking at Jesus as an apocalyptic prophet and failing to view him the way John later would because of Paul, etc.? Or does Mark see Jesus as God incarnate? Let's get the chronology right first. Okay. Mark's Gospel, Mark's gospel was written after Paul's letters. Yeah. So Mark's Gospel is not evidence for what people thought before Paul, or, or it's not obviously so. So the idea that we have a sort of low Christology in Mark, and then Paul comes along and turns it into a high Christology, um, and you know that, that, that doesn't work. Mark is writing later than Paul. Um, and so actually, if you want to postulate a low Christology, that is a Christology lower than Paul's Christology, it has to be just... A, uh, you know, a, a supposition. It's not in the texts. Um, uh, and uh, you see, I think I think Ehrman, Ehrman is 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 sticking to a position which is rapidly being um, superseded in New Testament scholarship. I mean, all the study of Christology in the New Testament in recent years has been going in the direction of an early. Christology. Um, so uh, I, I think it's perfectly credible both that the early traditions had a high Christology, the early traditions about Jesus, which Mark records, had a high Christology, um, and that, that Mark is, as it were, being faithful to those early traditions when he writes his gospel, um, and that some aspects of that at least go back to, to Jesus himself. Um, the Synoptic Gospels 
um, as you rightly say, are not evident for the low Christology. All three of the Synoptic Gospels have a high Christology. I think arguably Mark's Christology is just as high as John's. The difference is that John is more exclusively focused on Christology and writes a longer gospel. So Jesus' deity you know, is expounded at much greater length in John. Um, so, for example, Mark, uh, Jesus in Mark's gospel talks about himself as the son and God as his father. He does that just once in Mark. In John, he does it frequently. Um, so th there's, as it were, more material in John, but it's on the same lines as uh, the, the material that we have uh, more briefly in Mark's gospel. Hey, Dr. Bauckham, um, I'm a big fan of the Unbelievable podcast, and I've, I've listened to you debate um, Bart Ehrman a couple times on there. Um, and he, he keeps mentioning that we don't have any examples of literate, educated, first century Palestinian Jews that could write Greek. I would say he kept kind of hammering on that point. Um, do you think this is misleading? And do you think Josephus could be an example we could use? Well, you see, I think one could turn the point the other way around and say, if we leave aside the New Testament for the moment, I think we probably only have one Palestinian Jewish writer from the first century, and that's Josephus, and Josephus wrote in Greek. Um, so it's an argument from science that we simply don't have writings of first century Palestinian Jews other than Josephus. That's a great um, point. The other uh, sorry. The other point that I think was worth making is that, um, I mean, I think that two of the gospel writers are Palestinian Jews. I think Mark and John are written by Palestinian Jews. Um, Mark and John both write pretty basic, simple Greek. They don't write elaborate literary, literary Greek. They don't write with sort of accomplished Greek style in the way that Josephus does, actually. Um, they write pretty basic, simple Greek. It's the sort of Greek that one might easily imagine someone whose native language is not Greek. So the sort of Greek one would expect, actually, from someone whose native language is another language and who learned Greek at, at some point in their life. And the other point is just in terms of overwhelming probability. Greek was the international language of the time. It was like English today. Um, if, you, if you had a good education, certainly if you grew up in Jerusalem, as Mark probably did, and had a good education, um, you would learn Greek because it's what you needed to know. If you wanted to travel, you would need Greek. If you wanted, I and mean, how did the chief priests talk to the Roman governors? In Greek, surely. Um, that was the obvious thing to do. People who were prominent in society, people who had good education, would surely learn Greek. It was just the obvious thing to do. Um, Greek was spoken all over the Middle East because of Alexander the Great's conquests. Greek was spoken all over the Middle East. It was spoken even in Afghanistan, which was the furthest... Uh, point, as it were, that Alexander's empire uh, uh, reached. You know, there were, there were cities around Afghanistan at the time of the New Testament where people spoke Greek. Um, so one would expect um, people who had any reasonable degree of education to learn. I mean, I think I think most people would know a little bit of Greek. You know, the way you could go to a village in, in, in the Middle East today and people would have a little bit of English, you know, they'd be able to say hello and, and so forth, you know. Um, everybody would pick up a bit of Greek. Um, but educated people w would undoubtedly learn Greek. I, I think it's just, uh, just overwhelmingly probable. Mm, that's a great point. Um, moving on to uh, 
another point, what is form criticism and what is wrong with this approach that was used? Okay, well, basically my book, the, 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 the position that I'm refuting in my book, if you like, is the form critical view, uh, because that dominated 20th century approaches to the Gospels, if, if, if you're looking for the historical Jesus in the Gospels. And basically the form critics thought that um, the eyewitnesses, it's why I focus so much on the eyewitnesses, because for the reform critics, the eyewitnesses presumably started off the traditions about Jesus, but then they had nothing more to do with it. And the traditions about Jesus were passed down in the early Christian communities, and they were, as it were, owned by the communities. Um, and the communities were actually not interested in history. They weren't bothered about the historical Jesus, according to the reform critics. They were interested in the exalted living Lord Jesus. Um, and so they were felt perfectly free to, um, uh, to to adapt the traditions about Jesus uh, to, to the use they wanted to make of them in, in worship and preaching and to, 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 to originate you know, sayings of Jesus. So someone might say, yeah, this is what Jesus is saying, meaning Jesus the exalted Lord is saying this for a prophet, and that would become part of the tradition. So they had a very loose view of the way the traditions about Jesus developed. And the key thing from my point of view is that they thought the eyewitnesses had nothing to do with the traditions uh, once they uh, had, as it were, released them into this kind of free-flowing movement through all kinds of uh, different channels in the early Christian communities. Now, because that makes it very, very difficult if you're going to try and use the end results of those traditions, what we have in the Gospels, to try to use those to reconstruct the historical Jesus, you've got a, a difficult task because you've got to get behind all that uh, and the foreign critics had ideas about the ways in which the traditions developed. So they thought you could kind of reconstruct the kind of uh, trajectory of a tradition and, and sort of strip it back to its original form. Um, the details of all that, most scholars have now abandoned, actually. I mean, nobody, I think, any longer thinks you can do that sort of reconstructed. One of the things that was wrong with the foreign critics is that they relied on what at the, at the time when they were writing uh, was probably you know the, the best kind of view of oral tradition, the way that oral tradition works. Um, uh, but they were really relying on studies of things like European folk tales, the kind of materials handed down across centuries, um, and, um, and 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 which is not uh, it's not historical. People don't hand on folk tales because they care about the history. Um, now, that model of oral tradition, I mean, what we now know about oral tradition, we know far more about oral tradition than lots of oral societies around the world. And one thing we know is that there's no standard model of oral tradition. It works in all sorts of different ways in different communities. Um, and if a, if a community actually does want to preserve uh, reliable tradition, then they have ways of doing it. Um, and one of those ways is to have people as well guardians of the tradition, people whose job it is to know the traditions well and you consult them. That, I think, might well be a kind of model that we could apply to the early church. Who would the guardians of, of the traditions be? To whom would you go if you really wanted an authoritative version of stories about Jesus or sayings of Jesus? You would go to the eyewitnesses, surely. And the point about the eyewitnesses is that they were still around. You know, they didn't sort of disappear from the earth. Um, as soon after Jesus rose from the dead. Um, they were still around, we know that, and there were lots of eyewitnesses, and not just the Twelve Apostles, lots of other eyewitnesses too, and Paul talks about them, and they, and they were around, obviously, you know, they, but slowly they, they died off, 
especially in the course of the century, but, but many of them were around for quite a long time. Um, so the picture of the early traditions having nothing to do with the eyewitnesses, uh, I think is historically very improbable. Um, so the idea of my book was to put the eyewitnesses back into the picture um, and in, in a way to supply the gap that has been left by the demise of form criticism. Because really, um, all I had to do in my book was to assemble a set of objections to the form critical view, which many other scholars have already made. And once you put those objections together, and I think they're, they're, they're all uh, very, very, very strong points of criticism, then there's really very little left of the form critical view. Um, so in a way, I think form criticism has died a death which people haven't exactly noticed. Um, but people are beginning to say now, well, if form criticism isn't the answer, how, how do we do it? What, how did the early traditions work? How can we have access to reliable traditions and that sort of thing? Um, so in a sense, people are asking that question now. And I think the eyewitnesses are a major key to the answer of that, answer to that question. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. We're interviewing Dr. Richard Bauckham about the eyewitness testimony in the New Testament. So back to the eyewitness accounts of Jesus in the New Testament. What about supposed discrepancies or divergencies? You know, one angel, two angels, how many women, how many trips, things like that. What about those yes. supposed divergencies? Do those yes. undermine yes. the argument for the eyewitness uh, position, or do they maybe even support that argument? Well, I think one thing people ought to realize is that, um, that there are different sorts of writing history. You know, writing history isn't one sort of thing. There are different, different conventions for writing history, and people in the ancient world have their own conventions. And one of the things about historians in the ancient world is that they were expected to tell us a good story. I mean, all the gospel writers are good storytellers. They tell the story. They tell the stories in ways that engage you and uh, you know, they put you on the scene. And they tell stories in, in the ways that good storytellers do. Um, ancient historians were good storytellers, and therefore people were perfectly content with the idea that they exercised a certain freedom in how they told the story. So what you would expect to be, as it were, um, the, the stable, um, reliable elements in a story were the sort of gist of the story. And people could vary the details. And you weren't bothered. But the story of Peter's, Peter's denials is very good. Like people can look at this. If, they, if, you, if people have got a synopsis, you know, you can buy books where the Gospels are laid out in parallel so you can see the various versions of the story in the Gospels side by side. And the, the, the story of Peter's denials is one that occurs in all four Gospels. Um, so people can look at this and there's no doubt at all that the, the story is the same story, you know, the, the fundamental facts. And, and Peter denies Jesus three times, that's true in all four Gospels. The precise details of the story, who asks the question, exactly what do they ask, precisely how does Peter reply, those do vary across the four accounts. But those are the kinds of things in the ancient world you would not worry about. You would expect those details to vary. depends on how you're telling the story on any... Uh, and even someone like Peter himself telling these stories would probably vary it on different occasions. Um, and if you think about how how we tell stories, you know, we can tell stories about something that happened to us in the past. Uh, we're perfectly clear about what happened, um, but when we tell it on different occasions, uh, the details might vary. And, and nobody really bothers about that. We, 
And actually, when people retell stories, usually the basic account does remain stable, but depending on who they're telling it to, different circumstances, whatever, they might tell a longer version, a shorter version. Details can vary. It just remains the same, but details vary. And I think people can see that for themselves if they simply look at the accounts of the Gospels side by side, where the Gospels have the same narratives. Uh, you can see, for example, look at where, where Matthew and Luke uh, have taken the story from Mark. Um, uh, you can look at the, and you can see, as it were, the degree of freedom which Matthew and Luke obviously think they have to retell Mark's story. And they take a certain degree of freedom, uh, but it's only a certain degree of freedom. They keep the gist, and sometimes the details vary. And, and as I said, they, they almost always abbreviate Mark's stories. Uh, but the other thing you can see if you look at those parallel accounts is that when uh, Mark, uh, when Matthew and Luke are following a Markan story, they take more freedom in, as it were, how they told the story than they do when they are taking a parable of Mark, of Jesus from Mark, or a saying of Jesus from Mark. Um, the sayings of Jesus tend to, um, uh, uh, they, they have more stability, as it were, um, uh, in the different Gospels than the stories. Gospel writers evidently feel able to be freer in how they tell a story than when they uh, reproduce the saying of Jesus. So they tend to be more word-for-word word faithful, as it were, when it's the saying of Jesus. And that's not to say there aren't variations in the sayings of Jesus. It's quite clear that sometimes the gospel writers will uh, add a bit of interpretation into a saying of Jesus to help the reader. They, they will paraphrase it. They, they will do that sort of thing. Um, but they do it a lot less than when they're telling stories. Mm. Well, Dr. Bachman, you've, you've alluded to it a little bit, but what can we know about Jesus from John's gospel, and why should we trust it? Well, I actually do think that John's Gospel is the only one of the four that is actually written by an eyewitness. I think that's what the Gospel claims um, at the end, the end of the last chapter. Um, and uh, again, I think we have we have to have good reason for, for, for as it were, not taking that seriously. Um, uh, so, so uh, I, I think that you know we, we have really first-hand eyewitness testimony here. Having said that, I think it's a lot more interpretative than the other three Gospels. I think, again, there are different ways of writing history, and I think John does write a more interpretative sort of history than the others. I actually think that because the author of John's Gospel, uh, who is called in the Gospel, the disciple Jesus loved, uh, because he was very close to Jesus, I think he probably feels he has the authority with which to do rather more interpretation of Jesus. Um, particularly of Jesus' sayings, than the other Gospels do. Um, but having said that, there's another feature of John's Gospel, which I think is very, very neglected. People don't make this point. But once you notice it, it's very, very clear. And that is that John has far more, John is far more precise about time and place than the other Gospels are. Um, in John's Gospel, you almost always know precisely where Jesus is. He, makes, he has all these quite precise geographical um, indications. And you also know more or less when this is taking place, because um, John's Gospel is kind of structured around the Jewish festivals in the temple. Um, so everything that happens in John's Gospel happens, you know, a few months before or after or at or around the 
festival. So, so everything is actually located quite precisely geographically and located fairly precisely chronologically as well. Now, people in the ancient world thought that good history ought to be precise about geography and chronology. So I think that people reading John's Gospel in the ancient world um, would actually think it looks more like really good history than the other three Gospels do, um, because they, they do, of course, have some precision, um, but they're, they're sometimes quite vague about um, you know, things happening you know, somewhere in Galilee, and you can't be more precise than that um, in, in, in the other Gospels. Um, John is more precise and more uh, more precise about geography and chronology. So I, I think that's an indication that John actually knew what he's talking about. Um, and I think we can trust John when it comes to uh, events in the story of Jesus. I think John is more freely interpretative uh, when, he, uh, when, he, when he has Jesus talking. I think he does. Again, it, it's an issue of what kind of history. And um, people in the actual world did think that you could um, uh, you know, attribute uh, the sort of thing someone might have said uh, to a historical character. And I think what John does is to uh, remember the sayings of Jesus and reflect on them. So he gives us a kind of meditation on sayings of Jesus. So I think he's freer with the um, discourses of Jesus. Um, but I think he is much more sort of literally accurate when it comes to where and when things happened than the other Gospels perhaps are. Well, Dr. Bacham, it's been a great interview. I know that Grant and I both have just felt it's such a privilege to talk to you and to hear from you. And I hope that our readers will go to Amazon or wherever they buy books and pick up a whole bunch of your books, including the one that's coming out next, this 10th, this 10th anniversary edition of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, uh, just to pique their interest and to hopefully drive them to, uh, to go uh, pre-order that right now. You said, if I'm not mistaken, that there are three new chapters, correct, in this new edition? Yes. Wonderful. Be, by the way, it should be out at the end of April, I think. That, that's what the publishers are saying. Wonderful. And um, I know I'm you... Not, I'm not sure if you can pre-order it yet, but it's, it's coming at the end of April. Um, mm. But if people want... People people don't know the book at all. It's worth waiting for the new edition at the end of April. Uh, there's three new chapters. I mean, what, what I've done in the new chapters, um, some of it is... Um, uh, answered criticisms of the book because the book the book created a whole lot of discussion, very interesting discussion, um, uh, and people made some some some, some criticisms um, that I've taken very seriously and, and responded to them. Um, I've um, added a good deal more evidence on certain areas where people thought my evidence was a bit slender. Um, for example, my idea that in some cases, giving the name of someone in a historical narrative could be an indication that that person was the, the source of the story, the eyewitness. Uh, I found more and I think uh, much better and good evidence of that in other, other ancient writings than I had in the first book. Um, so I've answered criticisms, I've expanded the evidential base for some of what I'm saying, uh, and the other thing I've done is there's a whole chapter about the authorship of John's Gospel, because that was one of the most controversial uh, things. Among people who really liked the book, I think the thing many people found more difficult to follow me on with the authorship of John's Gospel. So there's a whole chapter on that.
for the audience, you can go to Richard Bauckham, and that's Richard, B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M. Again, Richard, B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M dot co dot U-K. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do, the research that you do, the debates that you do, all this that you do. Thank you, Dr. Bauckham. Really appreciate it. Well, it's always good to hear that. Thank you. Thank you for taking my work seriously. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thanks so much, and I will talk to you again in the future. Okay. <laughs> Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you got a lot out of today's show. This was the second part of our interview with Dr. Bauckham. You can get both parts of this interview at godsolutionshow.com under past shows. Tune in next week for our interview with Greg Kokel about his new book. Well, the gospel, which we can trust because we know the New Testament is reliable, is that God loves you and that even though you're a sinner, Jesus, God in human flesh, died in your place, that you could be made right with him and you could experience eternal life with him by putting your faith and trust in him alone. If you've never taken that step to believe in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do that now. Believe in him. Tell him, Jesus I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life. Please be my Savior and Lord. Well, I hope that you have a wonderful weekend. I hope that you'll go to godsolutionshow.com and check out some past interviews and things like that. Like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. Tune back in next week for that interview with Greg Kokel. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.